You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Uh, today's reading is, is from um, Acts 1 in the ESV, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Um, Good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, I want to start this morning by, I have a question for you, and that is, and maybe just by a show of hands, how many of you like to keep a schedule? You like to schedule things out. Some of you kind of do, kind of don't. I was talking to my son, uh, I think it was yesterday, and I was talking to him about this, and he was like, well, what fun is there in that, right? Uh, and he's 11, and so he doesn't have to keep a schedule uh, because we keep his schedule, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I'm one of those people that likes to know when things are coming down the pike, what to prepare for. I keep a schedule. Actually, a lot of days... One of the first things that I do during the day is I write out a list of goals, and then I even plan when I will have those goals accomplished by. Now, in some ways, I don't know why I do that, because I never reach those. I, that, never, that never actually happens. Um, but I, I think um, those of us who like to do that, we like to be prepared. Uh, we like to think about the timeline of events coming up. It gives us a certain sense of comfort, maybe a little bit of security. Having a schedule is really beneficial for children, right? Because it makes the world seem a little less chaotic, right? And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become a problem if you white-knuckle your schedule, right? If um, all your security is placed on things happening in this way, right? Um, one of the many things that God has been teaching me, he's not done teaching me this, but he's been teaching me through the course of our uh, adoption journey is that things don't go according to my schedule. Uh, things don't happen according to my plan. Actually, when we first started our adoption journey, uh, from, from Africa, the agency told us, hey, the program that you're in is doing really well. Uh, people are moving through it pretty quickly. Uh, we think, unlike other international adoptions, that you will bring home your child in like a couple of years. So now, this is seven years later that I'm telling you this now, right? right? And, and we have our daughter home now, so that, that part is good. But there are many times throughout this whole process where Sarah and I were asking uh, the agency timeline types of questions. And if, if you searched my office, uh, you would probably find lots of slips of paper where I tried to calculate how long each step would take approximately 
add them all together to try to figure out, okay, when are we going to bring our daughter back home? And, and as those benchmarks were passed over and over and over and over and over, year after year, <laughs> COVID and then these different things, right? It, it, it was like it could be a source of frustration. It, it could be a source of anxiety. So I'm saying all this because it's, it's easy for us to focus our attention on a timeline for the future rather than asking God what he would want to do in and through us in the present, in the present. Um, and part of the reason why I'm bringing this up is I think maybe this is in part of what's going on in the headspace of the disciples in the passage that we are looking at this moment. Remember, the disciples are Israelites, right? They have been waiting for the kingdom to come to Israel for a very, very long time. And so when the resurrected Jesus tells them, hey, look, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, wait some more, wait in Jerusalem until the, the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, the disciples have a timeline question that Elon read for us. And so let's remind ourselves of that timeline question. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want to say that this is a very natural question for them to ask, especially given first century expectations regarding what the Messiah would do, what the kingdom of God would be like, what it means for the Holy Spirit to come. If you're a first century Jew, the majority of first century Jews, when they're thinking about these topics, they're thinking about the end of time, right? <clears throat> they had an idea that, okay, what's going to happen at the end of time is that God is going to bring in all of Israel wherever they have been exiled to. He's going to bring them back into the promised land. He's going to judge the nations through a Messiah who will liberate them from foreign oppression, and he will restore Israel by his Holy Spirit. And not only was that part of, of the literature in the time of Jesus, Second Temple Judaism, but also back in the prophets, you see these ideas kind of touched on in different areas. Just look at Ezekiel 34 through 37, for example, or, or Joel, a book that we'll, we'll look at and will become important in Acts chapter 2. Right, these ideas are kind of present there. So if you combine those first century Jewish expectations with Jesus' talk with them during these, this 40-day period between his resurrection and ascension, where he's talking about what? Kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's the resurrected Messiah. And then he says the Spirit is coming. Well, if you combine those together, then you would expect this very question. Now, what might not be expected, although maybe should be expected, given what Jesus has been saying about the kingdom uh, to the disciples during his ministry, was how Jesus answers. And we have his answer to the disciples uh, in uh, verse 7 and following, which I'll read again. There we read, he said to them, to the apostles, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus doesn't tell them that their question is wrong or that their question is stupid, right? But what he does do is he kind of redirects them and he kind of lets them know through his words and also through uh, what happens to him, what you see happen to him, that there are some other things that are going to take priority and that are going to happen first before Jesus brings the kingdom in its fullness. So one of the the things that that this passage is about is that Jesus's kingdom is not, maybe they won't know the timing of when it's going to come in its fullness, but they can know that it's going to come and they can be encouraged by two things in the meantime. And those two things will be the points of our message this morning. One of the things that they can be encouraged by is that Jesus reigns over them now from heaven. That's that's one thing to be encouraged by. And then the second thing is that Jesus will expand his kingdom now through them on the earth. So let's think about the first thing that we can be encouraged by, even if we don't know when Jesus will consummate his kingdom in its fullness, we can be encouraged that Jesus reigns over us now. Now, before we dig into that, I want to ask you a second question to sort of be turning over in your mind as we go through this first point. And that question is this, who, or maybe for some of you it's a what, but who is it that you answer to with regarding to what you do, and when you do it. What you do and how you spend your time. Some of you might say, well, that's easy, my spouse. My spouse determines what I do and when I do it, right? Some of you might say, well, I have a boss, right? And he determines what I do and, and, and when I do it. Some of you, if you're honest, you might say, well, actually, I have an addiction, or maybe even more than one addiction. And if I'm honest, my addiction determines what I do and how I spend my time. For others of you, maybe God is revealing, well, maybe it's your past hurts. Your past hurts, in large part, sometimes it's not totally conscious, but your past hurts determine what you do and how you spend your time. Now, I I could answer this question in a variety of ways in in my own life, but sometimes for Sarah and I, as we were going through this adoption journey, it seemed like, from our vantage point, it seemed like the adoption agency and the agencies that were kind of connected to the adoption agency, government agencies and things like this, they were the ones who determined what we did and how we spent our time. So it's this question that I want you to sort of turn over in your mind as we we go along and now focus our attention more on the ascension of Jesus. Now, we have talked about the ascension of Jesus before. We've actually done a couple of sermon series over the past uh, several years on the ascension of Jesus. But the ascension of Jesus, we have said, is essentially his enthronement, right? 
So picking it back up uh, in, in verse uh, 9. Actually, before we go there, I wanted to, to remind you of a picture. This is called the Ascension of Christ, painted by Salvador Dali in 1958. And there's actually a lot that goes into this painting that I, that I won't um, cover. It's actually meant to represent the entirety of the history of redemption in one single picture. Right? And, and you can maybe start to pick up on some of that already just by looking at it. But probably the most striking feature of it is its perspective. I mean, how many paintings have you seen from this perspective, from below the feet of a person up? <laughs> right? But very few paintings like that. That's what makes this painting unique, special. Uh, it's probably why it costs a lot of money. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, it, there's, it's from this perspective. Whenever I read this passage in the book of Acts, I'm reminded of this picture because it's giving us the picture of the ascension from the vantage point of the disciples looking up. So picking it back up in verse 9. There it says, And when he had said these things, referring to Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus, there at the very end, he's saying Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to come back in the same way that he left. He's going to come back visibly, bodily. It's not going to be a spiritual coming back. Uh, it's going to be obvious to everyone he's coming back again. So that's a reference to the second coming. But there's also several other things that I want to point out just in this brief text. One, notice that Jesus is, he's lifted up, he's taken up. So he, he is not going uh, up in his own power, but God is actually exalting him, is what Acts chapter 5 verse 31 tells us. So Jesus is not just changing his locations, right? He is, this is symbolic, he is doing that, but this is symbolically representing and it's also happening, but it's symbolically representing his exaltation, right? His humiliation has already happened at the crucifixion, right? And now God is exalting him as a result of what he accomplished on, on the cross. And he's declaring in this moment who Jesus actually is. And he's going to be seated at the right hand of God, uh, as we'll see in a second. So he's being lifted up, exalted by God the Father. And where is he going to? At least four, like four times in the passage, where does it say that he's going to? Into heaven. Into heaven. Now, heaven in the Bible is understood to be where the throne room of God is. And sometimes it's, it's equated as the throne of God. So like uh, Jesus, for example, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he equates heaven with the throne of God. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 66, 1, Yahweh says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So Jesus is being exalted into heaven, and how is he getting there? By means of what? A cloud. Now, a cloud in the Bible often refers to God's presence, but it also refers to the clouds are sometimes seen as God's chariot. 
So think of Psalms uh, 104.3. You see it in Isaiah 19.1. So Jesus is on God's chariot, and the clouds are also part of the throne room of God. They are a feature of the, of the throne room of, of, of God in Psalm 97.2. So here we have Jesus ascending, and what we know, if you know some of the symbolism, is that Jesus, this is Jesus's Ascent, uh, uh, his enthronement into to the throne of God by, by means of this cloud. Jesus, the Son of Man, is being exalted in front of the disciples, in front of the apostles, um, from the vantage point of below. Now, now, this picture that's given from below fits with another passage of Scripture that talks about the ascension from above. And that, that scripture comes from Daniel chapter 7, which is a very important passage to the thought of the New Testament. And there we have a vision of the prophet Daniel where he says, beginning in verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, so they saw him go up with clouds, now the clouds are bringing him into the throne room. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. The son of man uh, title is going to take on more and more significance as things go along. Uh, it, it basically refers to a human, but it's, it's uh, here referring to the ultimate human. And he came to the Ancient of Days, speaking of God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So at the ascension, Jesus as the son of man, which by the way is his favorite designation for himself, he ascends to the throne room of God on a cloud and he receives an eternal kingdom. And once he receives that eternal kingdom, then he's invited to sit at the right hand of God, which is a position of power and authority. Psalm 110 talks about this. Peter's going to make much of this in Acts 2 uh, uh, when we, we get there. But this is also uh, affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. And there, in a passage where he is actually praying for the Ephesian believers to know the power of God, he lets them know, hey, I want you to know the power of God, and it's the same power that God the Father, quote, and this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See how all these things are fitting together? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So the ascension is Jesus' enthronement, and that has all kinds of implications for us, doesn't it? Right. The ascension shows us that Jesus is Lord over all. And if he's Lord over all, well, then he's Lord over you. He's Lord over me. And think about what that means relative to the question that we're turning over in our mind. Who is it that we answer to, ultimately? King Jesus. He's the one we submit our lives to. 
He's the one we submit our schedules to. He actually has more authority than your spouse. He has more authority than your boss. He has more authority than your addiction. He has more power than your addiction. Some of you might find that hard to believe, but he has more power than your addiction. He has more authority over your life than your past hurts. And this is very good news. Right? The, the, the acts, acts throughout the Acts and even in the gospel, it talks about the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is good news that Jesus is king. Now, it wouldn't be good news if he didn't love you. If somebody has a lot of power, that's not necessarily good news. Hitler had a lot of power. But Jesus has all the power and he loves you. And that means a lot of different things. But one thing it means is that your future is secure. Not because you know what's coming down the pike. Not because you've scheduled everything out. But because Jesus is king over your future. Now, I mentioned earlier how sometimes it felt like the adoption agency was sovereign over the decanter household, right? They determined what we did, when we did it, right? And so it would be frustrating when you would learn, like, maybe sometimes it felt like incompetency, sometimes it felt like something else, like when we weren't meeting the benchmarks that they told us that we would meet, and, and by missing it by years, you know, it's not like, oh, you said this week, but it's actually a couple weeks later. No, years, right? We would say, man, like those in charge of us are ruining our lives. That, that's what it would feel like sometimes, right? But I want to testify to something today, and that is, and Sarah, I, we've noticed this multiple occasions during the past couple of months that Josie came into our family at the exact right time. There, there were certain things that had to be in place here at Enclave. There were certain things that had to be in place in me. There are certain things that had to, like our marriage had to reach a certain point. And it's not like our marriage is perfect now or something, but it had to reach a certain point, right? There are things in Josie's life that had to happen first before it would be a good idea for all of that to, to happen, right? And, and we didn't know that. Our adoption agency didn't know that. The agency over in South Africa, they didn't know that. None of those entities have the vantage point to see all the pieces. God did. God, King Jesus did. And, and he is sovereign over our lives. So back to our passage. Although Jesus is telling the disciples that maybe they don't know when, they don't know when the final form of the kingdom will come, they can know that it, it, it will come. It'll, Jesus will come back in the same way that he left. It tells us in verse 11, 
and, and they can be encouraged that as witnesses of the ascension, that they can know that Jesus is Lord now. He's Lord now. We don't have to wait for him to be Lord later. He's Lord now. And it's actually on the basis of that authority that Jesus can assign and empower this mission that he's going to give them to extend the kingdom to the whole earth. How does Matthew, the commissioning, and Matthew 8, uh, 28 start? All authority has been given unto me, right? Therefore, right, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? So it's on the basis of his authority that they're sent, right? And it's accomplished by the power of his presence, even in Matthew 28. Lo, I'm with you always. We see the same sort of thing happening in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? On the basis of his authority, he's sending them out and empowering them with his presence, in this case, the Holy Spirit. So the second point, the second thing that we can be encouraged by is that Jesus will use us to expand his kingdom. After they ask this timeline question in, in verse 6, Jesus kind of redirects their attention to think about what needs to happen first. And what needs to happen first is spirit-empowered mission to the end of the earth. Picking it back up in verse 7. There it says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. But then the question becomes, okay, what exactly does that mean? What, what, what is a spirit-empowered witness? What is that? It might be helpful to think a little bit about what the term witness means. It's kind of an interesting word in the sense that it's normally used in legal contexts, isn't it? It's someone who helps... In a legal context, they help establish the fact of something because they saw it. So we're talking about eyewitness testimony. And there is a lot of power placed on eyewitness testimony throughout human history. For example, in the Old Testament, if you look back at Numbers 35 verse 30, there Yahweh is giving instruction to his people regarding, hey, look, don't impose the death penalty. So we're talking about something as serious as the death penalty. Don't impose the death penalty for murder unless there is more than one eyewitness, right? So we can understand why it should be more than one, right? Because otherwise you'd be, that could be a way of murder, <laughs> you know? So there's got to be more than one, but think about it. You can put somebody to death, to death, on the basis of two. Two eyewitnesses. So what kind of power and authority did they see in an eyewitness? Right? You see the same kind of logic used in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 and, and following regarding Israelites who are worshiping an idol. Right? Now, in, in the same way, this is if you think about the apostles, how does that fit in with the apostles? Well, the apostles are witnesses in the same kind of technical way in the sense that they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. They saw it. They didn't get a fuzzy feeling about it. 
They saw it. I mean, maybe there were also fuzzy feelings. Hopefully there were also fuzzy. But they saw it. Right? They were eyewitnesses. And so throughout the Gospel of Acts, if you keep reading, it, what are they bearing witness to? Look, we saw a guy who was dead and is now alive. Right? And then we saw him go up into heaven on a cloud. Like, we saw that, right? And if you think about in the Old Testament, on the power, uh, you know, on the authority of two witnesses, you could put somebody to death, right? And uh, over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. Well, what kind of authority does that have? And so when we think about ourselves, right, in, in a less technical sense, we could say that we're witnesses too, in the sense that having received the testimony, the witness of the apostles, we point others to their testimony. Both as we, we tell others about the historical reality of the resurrection and the ascension, but also as we testify to the life-transformative power of Jesus' reign over us as recipients of the Spirit. So in that sense, we are also, also witnesses. So that helps us to understand maybe, okay, what, is, you know, what does it mean to be a spirit-empowered witness? That helps us understand. But what about the power that Jesus is talking about? He says, wait till you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. What does the power of the Spirit look like in the book of Acts? Well, I think it looks like several things. One, it looks like Jesus. Right? What, what do the, the Sanhedrin say when Peter and John come? It's like they, they notice two things about them. <laughs> One, they're uneducated. Right? I don't know if they spoke a certain way or, you know, they're, oh, those guys are definitely uneducated. Right? But then secondly, they have, they've been with Jesus. Okay? So that's one thing that the power of the Holy Spirit looks like. It looks like boldness to proclaim Jesus in the face of opposition. So we talked about that last week. Acts 4, the entire church prayed for that boldness to come upon them. So it's not like they're mustering up this boldness. They're praying that the Holy Spirit would give them that boldness. We prayed for that uh, last week for God to give us that boldness. And another thing that it looks like in the book of Acts is miraculous signs and wonders that validate the message of Jesus. So for example... When people start talking about the wondrous works of God in a language that they did not know previously, <laughs> would you say that's a miraculous sign? That is a miraculous sign validating the message of Jesus. When somebody is raised from the dead by an apostle, or, or, or they are healed, right, or an exorcism happens, <clears throat> these are all miraculous signs visible to everybody that validate the message of Jesus. Now, it's not about the signs. It's about the message of Jesus. But nevertheless, there are these signs that validate that, that message. And we're going we're gonna to be talking about some of those things as we move along in the book of Acts. And that might be challenging for some of you, and it might be challenging for others of you for different reasons, right? But just to sort of frame the discussion... Uh, just this morning, uh, I think there's a couple of, of, of pitfalls that we should avoid as we talk about 
miraculous signs and tongues and and demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit as we find them in the book of Acts. How should we think about those things now? I think there's a couple of ditches that we need to avoid as as we kind of travel down that road. One ditch, I think, and I say, I say this with trepidation and, and, and humility, is saying that, look, the Spirit can't do now what he did then. Like, we, he, that was, like, Spirit-empowered witness ended in the first century, right? I, I don't want to say that, right? And many of the theologians I respect do say that, and I respect them, right? And this is not about disrespecting them, but I just, I don't want to put the spirit in a box and tell him what he can or cannot do. And aside from the fact that, I mean, if you look at where um, especially new gospel ministry is breaking ground, (laughs) people who, who think that it ended in the first century quickly decide they don't believe that any longer because it's just happening. Like, they're not trying to make it happen. It's just happening. And so they change their view on the basis of, of their experience. Not that we make the experience the basis of our views, but I'm just saying, right? It's part of it, you know? Uh, so that's one ditch I want to avoid is, is saying like, okay, well, the Spirit can't do stuff like that anymore. But on the other hand, I also want to avoid the... Uh, the ditch of making it about the miracles or making it about uh, sometimes, and I respect some of these people too, but when it sounds like the Holy Spirit's power is on demand, that, that's where I start pumping the brakes too because it's like, well, the Holy Spirit is not a tool that you take out of a tool chest and then apply it to something. No, no, he, the Holy Spirit is God, right? So, so you don't wield the Holy Spirit. If anything, the Holy Spirit wields you, right? Like, it, uh, hopefully, if you're filled by him, right, then you are controlled by him. He's the one who gives power to the, the message. So I think as we go along, if we kind of avoid these two ditches, it, it will be good for us as we go along in this discussion. So back to the passage. Jesus is telling his his apostles, look, you you might not know the timing of when this is all going to be accomplished, but I'm going to use you as spirit-empowered witnesses. And then in addition to that, I want you to know the scope of your mission. And it goes beyond the borders of Israel. So think about their question. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? In In part, Jesus is saying, well, I'm not denying that, but I want you to reframe that because it's going to go beyond Israel, right? Verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, to Israel, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of the significant purposes of the book of Acts is to demonstrate how the kingdom of God is meant for the Gentiles. And it was always meant to include the the Gentiles. And one place where we see that is in a quotation of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas are actually speaking to some Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they say this, 
beginning in verse 46 of Acts chapter 13, and the latter part of it. They say, since you, referring to these Jews who've rejected the Messiah, thrust it, referring to the good news of Jesus' kingdom, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then they quote Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 49, 6, when they say, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, using some of the very same language that we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And it's actually this global mission and the idea of this global mission that ties this whole passage together. Because actually, Jesus' kingdom will not come in its fullness until God, through us, yes, but it's not dependent on us. Sometimes it's at missions conference, it sounds like it's dependent on us sometimes. But God will complete his global mission before bringing the kingdom of God back in its fullness. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 14. There it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus is not just haphazardly talking about topics. Like all these things kind of work together. So in other words, before Israel can be restored. Before the kingdom can be fully consummated, the kingdom message must go out to all the world so that God can gather to himself, not just Jews who are in exile, but all people who are in exile, having been kicked out of the garden because of their sin. Israel is actually just only a picture. It's only like part of the story. It's actually bigger than that. It's actually about our being exiled out of the garden and being brought back into the garden of Eve. And that is pictured in the history of Israel, but it includes that, but it's much bigger than that. He is gathering all kinds of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will submit themselves to King Jesus. And so what that means is that the kingdom is for everyone. The kingdom of God is for everyone, even people that Jewish, the Jews at this time were uncomfortable with. Even people that you're uncomfortable with. Because of what they might, they don't look like you, they don't talk like you, they don't dress like you, they don't vote like you. The kingdom of God is for everyone who submit their lives to King Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit. So our passage teaches us, look, there's things about the big picture future that we don't know. Like God hasn't entrusted us with those things, right? When the kingdom's full consummation is coming, we don't know. So stop trying to figure it out because you don't know, right? Don't listen to people on the TV who say they know because God said they don't know. We don't know. The Father knows and we can trust the Father. We can know it's coming. We can know that. And we can rely on King Jesus now to use us as spirit-empowered witnesses to proclaim his kingdom wherever he sends us. Now today, 
uh, we celebrate the Lord's table. And it's in this moment that we remember, we remember that Jesus' exaltation only came after his humiliation. In order for there to be a kingdom, God through Jesus had to take care of our sin problem. And this is what the elements represent. Jesus, the king, who by the way was always the king, came to earth, laid aside his divine prerogatives, took on humanity, and died in our place. And so now, as we take the bread, we remember Jesus' body, broken for us. Take and eat. And as we take the cup, we are reminded of Jesus' shed blood by which he inaugurated his kingdom, purchased a people for himself, and by his blood he gave us the promises of a new covenant, the forgiveness of sin, the Holy Spirit coming and living on the inside, changing us to be a different kind of people who obey God, not, not out of duty, although that's there, but because we delight in God. He purchased us with his blood. Take and eat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his cross. We thank you for his exaltation. We thank you that he reigns over us now in his love. Father, by your spirit, please help us to trust him with our lives, with our future. Empower us by your spirit to be witnesses of all that we've seen and all that we have heard regarding what you have done on the earth and in our own lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.